Section 106, Introduction. This revelation is dated November the 25th, 1834. This means it had been almost five months since Joseph returned from Missouri. During this time, he had been busily engaged in two major projects. One was pressing forward the construction of the Kirtland Temple, and the other was moving from branch to branch among the Ohio saints. They needed to be continually strengthened. Furthermore, funds were urgently needed to finance the temple. In his history of the church, Joseph indicates that the elders were beginning to return to Kirtland, and it was important to make preparations for the school for the elders, wherein they might be more perfectly instructed during the winter months. A building for a printing office was nearly finished, and the lower story of the building was to be used for the school of the elders. It was during this extremely busy time that a meeting was convened in Kirtland and the following revelation was received. Now this is the text of section 106. It is my will that my servant Warren A. Cowdery should be appointed and ordained a presiding high priest over my church in the land of freedom and the regions round about. The previous March, Joseph Smith had been visiting the town of Freedom, and Warren A. Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery's older brother, had entertained the prophet at his home. Joseph converted several people at Freedom, including Heman Hyde. Shortly after Heman's baptism, his parents and 30 to 40 others were baptized. They were organized into a branch, and investigators from that region came to the meetings. The Lord indicated that he wanted Warren Cowdery to be ordained the presiding high priest over the branch in freedom. And should preach my everlasting gospel, and lift up his voice and warn the people, not only in his own place, but in the adjoining counties. Warren is to not only preach in the community of freedom, but in all the region round about. And devote his whole time to this high and holy calling which I now give unto him, seeking diligently the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all things necessary shall be added thereunto, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Warren is to devote his full time to the ministry and depend upon the Lord for his necessities. And again, verily I say unto you, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. The Lord continually emphasizes the urgency of expecting the second coming of the Lord in the near future. In terms of the Lord's time, it is very near, and even though it may be somewhat distant in terms of man's time, the Lord, who knows the end from the beginning, is conscious of the fact that the second coming will come as a great surprise to most people, and come as a thief in the night. Therefore gird up your loins, that you may be the children of light, and that day shall not overtake you as a thief. The command to gird up their loins implies that they must be ready for this great event regardless of when it comes. And again verily I say unto you, There was joy in heaven when my servant Warren bowed to my scepter, and separated himself from the crafts of men. Warren Cowdery is advised that there was tremendous rejoicing in heaven when he followed in the footsteps of his younger brother, Oliver Cowdery, and came into the church. 
Therefore blessed is my servant Warren, for I will have mercy on him, and notwithstanding the vanity of his heart, I will lift him up inasmuch as he will humble himself before me. Warren had a streak of pride in his nature, and the Lord warns him to be humble and contrite so that he can be forgiven. And I will give him grace and assurance wherewith he may stand. And if he continue to be a faithful witness and a light unto the church, I have prepared a crown for him in the mansions of my father. Even so, amen. As with all of the other saints, in order for him to be rewarded with a crown and a place among the mansions of the Father. Unfortunately, this was not to be. Warren and Oliver both left the church about the same time, but while Oliver humbly sought rebaptism after ten years, Warren did not. When the saints followed Brigham Young West, Warren remained in the east and lost the great blessing the Lord had promised him. Now for a brief historical note. This revelation brings us to the close of 1834. Many important things have occurred during this year. On the 17th of February, the first High Council of the Church was organized in Kirtland with the Prophet Joseph and his counselors as the presiding officers. In a conference held on May the 3rd at Kirtland, it was moved by Sidney Rigdon and seconded by Newell K. Whitney that the Church be known as the Church of the Latter-day Saints. On May the 5th, it will be recalled the main body of Zion's camp left for Missouri. On June the 22nd, the Lord disbanded Zion's camp and authorized the members to stay in Zion or return to Kirtland as they wished. The prophet left immediately for Kirtland. On June 22nd, the following were chosen to receive their endowments. Edward Partridge, William W. Phelps, Isaac Morley, John Corral, John Whitmer, David Whitmer, Algernon Sidney Gilbert, Peter Whitmer, Jr., Simeon Carter, Newell Knight, Parley P. Pratt, Christian Whitmer, Solomon Hancock, Thomas B. Marsh, and Lyman White. On the 3rd of July, a high council was organized in Clay County, Missouri, similar to the one which had been organized earlier in Kirtland. The presidency of the High Council in Missouri was David Whitmer, William W. Phelps, and John Whitmer. On the same date, David Whitmer was sustained as president of the church in Zion, who would serve in the absence of the prophet, who was sustained as the first president of the entire church. On November the 29th, the prophet Joseph and Oliver Cowdery entered into a solemn covenant with the Lord for themselves and their descendants, that if he would prosper them and enable them to pay their debts, they would give the Lord a tenth of all that he blessed them with, also that they would be faithful in the use of that which might be entrusted to their care. On December 5th, Oliver Cowdery was ordained assistant president in accordance with the revelation in section 20, verse 3, that designated him as the second elder of the church. Section 107, Introduction On the 14th of February, 1835, a meeting was held at Kirtland in which all of the members of Zion's camp had been invited. On this occasion, the Prophet Joseph stated that it was the will of God 
that those who went to Zion with a determination to lay down their lives if necessary should be ordained to the ministry and go forth to prune the vineyard for the last time. Joseph Smith thereupon submitted a proposal that they proceed with the selection of twelve apostles. This was approved by everyone present. There was a recess for almost one hour, and then the three witnesses, namely Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, proceeded to carry out the commandment of the Lord in section 18, verse 27, to select twelve apostles. The selection was made from among those who could personally testify to the truthfulness of the gospel and the divinity of Jesus Christ. As indicated in the text, those chosen and ordained apostles were Lyman E. Johnson, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Orson Hyde, David W. Patton, Luke S. Johnson, William E. McClellan, John E. Boynton, Orson Pratt, William Smith, Thomas B. Marsh, and Parley P. Pratt. Later they were arranged in seniority according to their ages. On the 28th of February, a conference was held, and Joseph Smith began selecting the members of the First Council of Seventy. On the 28th of February, another conference was held, and Joseph Smith began selecting the members for the First Council of Seventy. It was to be presided over by a presidency of seven, and those chosen were Hazen Aldridge, Joseph Young, Levi W. Hancock, Leonard Rich, Zebedee Coltrane, Lyman Sherman, and Sylvester Smith. The determination of the council to forgive past offenses is demonstrated by the fact that Sylvester Smith was made one of the presidents of the Seventy in spite of his previous difficulties. All of the Seventy were set apart by the members of the First Presidency. On the 28th of March, 1835, the Twelve Apostles held a council meeting and then left on a wide variety of missionary assignments. They said it was because of their feeling of unworthiness that they petitioned the Lord for an uplifting revelation to take with them to their respective fields of labor. And this brings us to the contents of section 107. There are in the church two priesthoods, namely the Melchizedek and Aaronic, including the Levitical priesthood. The Lord is about to proclaim one of the greatest revelations in the church on the subject of the holy priesthood. He begins by saying that there are two priesthoods, one called after Melchizedek and the other named the Aaronic priesthood. Notice that the Aaronic priesthood, quote, includes, unquote, the Levitical priesthood. Further on in verse 4, the Lord says the Aaronic, quote, or, unquote, the Levitical priesthood, suggests that the two names are interchangeable. The Levitical priesthood was therefore never a separate part of the Aaronic priesthood. Why the first is called a Melchizedek priesthood is because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. Before his day, it was called the Holy Priesthood, after the order of the Son of God, but out of respect or reverence to the name of the Supreme Being to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, 
They, the church in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek, or the Melchizedek priesthood. In verse 2, we learn that the original name of the priesthood was the priesthood after the order of the Son of God. This, of course, would refer to Jesus Christ, but out of deference to the name of the Savior, they decided to call the priesthood after the great high priest Melchizedek, so that the name of the Savior would not become commonplace. All other authorities or offices in the church are appendages to this priesthood. But there are two divisions or grand heads. One is the Melchizedek priesthood, and the other is the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. The office of an elder comes under the priesthood of Melchizedek. The Melchizedek priesthood holds the right of presidency and has power and authority over all the offices in the church in all ages of the world to administer in spiritual things. The presidency of the high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, have a right to officiate in all the offices in the church. Now, Melchizedek priesthood is not only the supreme authority over all the church, but those who hold this authority can function in offices of the entire church in any dispensation. High priests, after the order of the Melchizedek priesthood, have a right to officiate in their own standing under the direction of the presidency, in administering spiritual things, and also in the office of an elder, priest of the Levitical order, teacher, deacon, and member. Elders who are called to be high priests are those who are to serve in the office of the presidency or any spiritual office assigned to them by the presidency. An elder has a right to officiate in his stead when the high priest is not present. The high priest and elder are to administer in spiritual things, agreeable to the covenants and commandments of the church, and they have a right to officiate in all these offices of the church when there are no higher authorities present. Because an elder has all of the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, he can function in all of the offices of the priesthood in case any of the higher officers are absent. However, this must be in accordance with the covenants and principles of order which have been laid down by the church. The second priesthood is called the priesthood of Aaron, because it was conferred upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations. Now we come to the Aaronic priesthood. It is called after Aaron because it was conferred upon him and all of his succeeding posterity. Why it is called the lesser priesthood is because it is an appendage to the greater or the Melchizedek priesthood and has power in administering outward ordinances. Because the Aaronic priesthood is an appendage to the Melchizedek priesthood, it is sometimes referred to as the lesser priesthood. It is limited in its authority. The bishopric is the presidency of this priesthood and holds the keys or authority of the same. It is interesting that the presiding bishop of the church is over the Aaronic priesthood, and the local bishop presides over the Aaronic priesthood in each ward. No man has a legal right to this office, to hold the keys of this priesthood, except he be a literal descendant of Aaron. It is clear that no man has a legal right to this office of bishop, 
unless he is a little descendant of Aaron. However, since no such person has ever been revealed by the Lord, the next verse applies. But as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found, provided he is called and set apart and ordained unto this power by the hands of the presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. It is obvious from this that not even a literal descendant of Aaron can serve in this high office unless he has been called and set apart by the first presidency. The power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood is to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens opened unto them, to commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. The Lord wants to make it clear that the governing keys over the whole church belong to the higher priesthood. These include all of the keys to the spiritual blessings of the church. For example, the privilege of receiving and unfolding the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, receiving visions, communicating with the assembly of the church of the firstborn, and enjoying communion with God, even the very presence of both the Father and the Son. The power and authority of the lesser or Aaronic priesthood is to hold the keys of the ministering of angels and to administer in outward ordinances the letter of the gospel, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, agreeable to the covenants and commandments. The power and authority of the Aaronic priesthood includes the ministering of angels and the administration of the outward ordinances such as baptism. It does not include the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Of necessity there are presidents or presiding officers growing out of, or appointed of, or from among those who are ordained to the several offices in these two priesthoods. At every level of the priesthood order, there are presiding officers to govern the affairs of the quorum and regulate the behavior and obedience of the members of the quorum to the principles of the gospel. Of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests, chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the church, form a quorum of the presidency of the church. The first presidency consists of a quorum of three high priests. They are ordained by the quorum of the twelve and sustained by approval and prayers of the whole church. The twelve traveling counselors are called to be the twelve apostles, or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. Thus, differing from other officers in the church in the duties of their calling. And they form a quorum, equal in authority and power to the three presidents previously mentioned. The quorum of twelve apostles are equal in authority with the first presidency. Therefore, if the first presidency is unable to function, as was the case for about three years following the stroke of President Benson, the Quorum of the Twelve acts as a backup team 
to direct the affairs of the church until the new presidency has been set up. The seventy are also called to preach the gospel and to be a special witnesses unto the Gentiles and in all the world, thus differing from the other officers in the church in the duties of their calling. And they form a quorum equal in authority to that of the twelve special witnesses or apostles just named. The seventy have a special calling to preach the gospel to all the world and seek to convert mankind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a specialized calling, and they are to perform this mission without being diverted to other functions of the church. If the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve are unable to function, the first quorum of seventy have the authority to govern the church until either of the two upper quorums are available and functioning. And every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power or validity one with the other. When it comes to making decisions, each person serving on these quorums has a veto power. Every decision by these three quorums must be unanimous in order to become operative. A majority may form a quorum when circumstances render it impossible to be otherwise. A majority of each of these quorums is sufficient to hold hearings and make decisions. Unless this is the case, their decisions are not entitled to the same blessings which the decisions of a quorum of three presidents were anciently, who were ordained after the order of Melchizedek and were righteous and holy men. If decisions are not in accordance with these principles, they are not entitled to the same blessings as those received by the unanimous decisions of the three high priests who governed Israel in ancient times. The decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness, and lowliness of heart, meekness, and long-suffering, and in faith, and virtue, and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. For authorities of the church to function in a godly manner, and reach decisions the Lord will bless. They must pursue their duties in humility, faith, and righteousness. Because the promise is, if these things abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. And in case that any decision of these quorums is made in unrighteousness, it may be brought before a general assembly of the several quorums, which constitute the spiritual authorities of the church. Otherwise, there can be no appeal from their decision. Should there be a general feeling that a decision has been made in unrighteousness or in error, it can be brought before the conference of all the quorums of the priesthood for review. Otherwise, the decisions of the First Presidency are made without being subject to appeal. The Twelve are a traveling presiding high council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the presidency of the church, agreeable to the institution of heaven, to build up the church, 
and regulate all the affairs of the same in all nations, first unto the Gentiles, and secondly unto the Jews. The Quorum of the Twelve are a traveling, quote, presiding high council, unquote. As they move across the earth, they can make decisions and reorganize the church wherever necessary. Their proselyting obligations are first to the Gentiles and eventually to the Jews. The seventy are to act in the name of the Lord, under the direction of the twelve or the traveling high council, in building up the church and regulating all the affairs of the same in all nations, first unto the Gentiles and then to the Jews. The seventy are to serve under the direction of the Quorum of the Twelve, to also serve as a traveling high council and rearrange the affairs of the kingdom in any way that may be necessary. It is also their proselyting duty to preach to the Gentiles first and then ultimately the Jews. The twelve being sent out, holding the keys, to open the door by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and first unto the Gentiles, and then unto the Jews. It is the duty of the twelve who hold the keys to open new regions of the preachings of the gospel. The standing high councils at the stakes of Zion form a quorum, equal in authority in the affairs of the church in all their decisions, to the quorum of the presidency, or to the traveling high council. The standing high councils in each of the stakes are a governing body, and their decisions are equal to that of the quorums of the Twelve and the First Presidency, unless a special appeal is made to one of the higher quorums. The High Council in Zion form a quorum, equal in authority in the affairs of the Church in all their decisions, to the councils of the Twelve at the stakes of Zion. This verse emphasizes that the new high council in Zion has authority to govern the affairs of Zion equal to the quorum of twelve apostles or the first presidency. This means their decisions are final unless there is a special appeal. It is the duty of the traveling high council to call upon the seventy when they need assistance to fill the several calls for preaching and administering the gospel instead of any others. It is the duty of the apostles to call upon the seventy to assist them in their work in the field. It is the duty of the twelve, in all large branches of the church, to ordain evangelical ministers as they shall be designated unto them by revelation. It is the duty of the apostles to appoint patriarchs so that the people may receive their patriarchal blessings. The selection of patriarchs should be dictated by the spirit of revelation. The order of this priesthood was confirmed to be handed down from father to son, and rightly belongs to the literal descendants of the chosen seed to whom the promises were made. This verse has reference to the patriarchal priesthood rather than the calling of a stake patriarch. This order was instituted in the days of Adam, and came down by lineage in the following manner. This order of priesthood began with Adam, and has been passed down from father to son in perpetual continuity. However, the oldest patriarch performed all of the ordinations as long as he lived. The seven prophets who lived after Adam were all ordained by him. From Adam to Seth, who was ordained by Adam at the age of sixty-nine years, and was blessed by him three years previous to his, Adam's, death, 
and received the promise of God by his Father that his posterity should be the chosen of the Lord, and that they should be preserved unto the end of the earth, because he, Seth, was a perfect man, and his likeness was the express likeness of his Father, insomuch that he seemed to be like unto his Father in all things, and could be distinguished from him only by his age. Seth was ordained by Adam at the age of sixty-nine years. He was in the express likeness of Adam, except for his age. Enos was ordained at the age of one hundred and thirty-four years and four months by the hand of Adam. Enos was ordained by Adam when he was a hundred and thirty-four. God called upon Canaan in the wilderness in the fortieth year of his age, and he met Adam in journeying to the place Shidolamach. He was eighty-seven years old when he received his ordination. Canaan was ordained by Adam when he was eighty-seven years of age. Mahalalil was four hundred and ninety-six years and seven days old when he was ordained by the hand of Adam, who also blessed him. Mahalalil was four hundred and ninety-six years old when he was ordained by Adam. Jared was two hundred years old when he was ordained under the hand of Adam, who also blessed him. Jared was two hundred years old when he was ordained by Adam. Enoch was twenty-five years old when he was ordained under the hand of Adam, and he was sixty-five, and Adam blessed him. And he saw the Lord, and he walked with him, and was before his face continually. And he walked with God three hundred and sixty-five years, making him four hundred and thirty years old when he was translated. However, Enoch was only twenty-five years old when he was ordained by Adam. Enoch saw the Lord and walked with him three hundred and sixty-five years. He was four hundred and thirty years of age when he was translated. Methuselah was one hundred years old when he was ordained under the hand of Adam. Methuselah was one hundred years old when he was ordained by Adam. Lamech was thirty-two years old when he was ordained under the hand of Seth. Lamech was thirty-two years old when he was ordained by Seth. Noah was ten years old when he was ordained under the hand of Methuselah. Noah was only ten years old when he was ordained by Methuselah. Three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, who were all high priests, with the residue of his posterity who were righteous, into the valley of Adam on Diamon, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. Three years before the death of Adam, he called his posterity together at Adam on Diamon, and gave the last seven patriarchs his final blessing. And the Lord appeared unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam, and called him Michael, the Prince, the Archangel. And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam, and said unto him, I have set thee to be at the head. A multitude of nations shall come of thee, and thou art a prince over them for ever. The Savior then appeared. He blessed Adam and called him Michael, the prince and the archangel. He ministered comfort to Adam in his old age and told Adam he would preside over the entire human race forever. 
And Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation, and notwithstanding he was bowed down with age, being full of the Holy Ghost, predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. Adam responded by describing what would happen to humanity down to the last generation at the end of the millennium. These things were all written in the book of Enoch and are to be testified of in due time. All of these interesting details are included in the book of Enoch, which will be given to members of the church in due time. Now this ends the original text of section 107. However, as Joseph received other nuggets of revelation during the last several months of the year, he added them to this section. We will now study these additional verses before we examine section 108. It is the duty of the twelve also to ordain and set in order all the other officers of the church, agreeable to the revelation which says, To the church of Christ in the land of Zion, in addition to the church laws respecting church business, Verily I say unto you, saith the Lord of hosts, There must needs be presiding elders to preside over those who are of the office of an elder. The Lord says it is the duty of the twelve to see that all officers of the church are set apart in their various offices. He now directs specific instructions to the saints down in Zion. He starts out by saying that elders should be set apart to preside over the quorums of the elders. And also priests, to preside over those who are of the office of a priest. And also teachers, to preside over those who are of the office of a teacher in like manner, and also the deacons. Wherefore, from deacon to teacher, and from teacher to priest, and from priest to elder, severally as they are appointed, according to the covenants and commandments of the church. And so they are promoted from deacon to teacher, and from teacher to priest, and from priest to elder. Thus the orderly processes of the priesthood are to be established. Then comes the high priesthood, which is the greatest of all. Wherefore, it must needs be that one be appointed of the high priesthood to preside over the priesthood, and he shall be called president of the high priesthood of the church, or in other words, the presiding high priest over the high priesthood of the church. From the same comes the administering of ordinances and blessings upon the church by the laying on of the hands. The higher priesthood is the greatest of all of the presiding high priests over the church, and they must see that all of the ordinances and blessings are administered unto the people by the laying on of hands. Wherefore the office of a bishop is not equal unto it, for the office of a bishop is in administering all temporal things. The Lord says the office of bishop is not equal to that of the high priest over the whole church. That is because the bishop is assigned to administer the temporal affairs of the church under the administration of the first presidency. Nevertheless, a bishop must be chosen from the high priesthood unless he is a literal descendant of Aaron. Nevertheless, the bishop must be chosen from among the high priesthood unless it is revealed that there is a literal descendant of Aaron who should hold this office. For unless he is a literal descendant of Aaron, he cannot hold the keys of that priesthood. Nevertheless, a high priest, that is, after the order of Melchizedek, may be set apart unto the ministering of temporal things, 
having a knowledge of them by the Spirit of truth. But if the identity of a literal descendant of Aaron is not forthcoming with the inherited keys to the priesthood of Aaron, then a high priest must be set apart. He must be a man who has a full understanding and knowledge of the temporal matters which are administered through the Spirit of truth. And also to be a judge in Israel, to do the business of the church, to sit in judgment upon transgressors, upon testimony, as it shall be laid before him according to the laws, by the assistance of his counselors, whom he has chosen or will choose among the elders of the church. This is the duty of a bishop who is not a literal descendant of Aaron, but has been ordained to the high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He must also have the attributes of a righteous judge. As such, he will administer the business of the church. He will also sit in judgment on those who are accused of transgression. He will measure the testimony of the accuser and make a final decision with the assistance of his counselors. Thus shall he be a judge, even a common judge among the inhabitants of Zion, or in a stake of Zion, or in any branch of the church where he shall be set apart unto this ministry, until the borders of Zion are enlarged, and it becomes necessary to have other bishops or judges in Zion or elsewhere. And inasmuch as there are other bishops appointed, they shall act in the same office. Those who have been ordained bishops shall preside over the wards and branches of the church until the membership has grown to the point where other wards and branches must be organized. The new bishops will proceed to administer the affairs of the church in exactly the same manner. But a literal descendant of Aaron has a legal right to the presidency of this priesthood, to the keys of this ministry, to act in the office of bishop independently without counselors, except in a case where a president of the high priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, is tried to sit as a judge in Israel. This shall be the order of things unless a literal descendant of Aaron is identified. In that case he will serve as a bishop without counselors, except where the president of the church is being tried. The procedure in such cases will be covered in a moment. And the decision of either of these councils, agreeable to the commandment which says, Again verily I say unto you, The most important business of the church and the most difficult cases of the church inasmuch as there is not satisfaction upon the decision of the bishop or judges, it shall be handed over and carried up unto the council of the church before the presidency of the high priesthood. And the presidency of the council of the high priesthood shall have power to call other high priests, even twelve, to assist as counselors. And thus the presidency of the high priesthood and its counselors shall have power to decide upon testimony according to the laws of the church. If the decision of a bishop is in dispute, the matter shall be referred to the first presidency, who will hear the case with the assistance of the Quorum of the Twelve. And after this decision, it shall be had in remembrance no more before the Lord. For this is the highest counsel of the Church of God, and a final decision upon controversies in spiritual matters. The decision of the first presidency will stand as a final judgment, and no further appeal will be allowed. In fact, it says the issue will no longer exist before the eyes of the Lord.
There is not any person belonging to the church who is exempt from this council of the church. And inasmuch as a president of the high priesthood shall transgress, he shall be had in remembrance before the common council of the church, who shall be assisted by twelve counselors of the high priesthood, and their decision upon his head shall be an end of controversy concerning him. Every member of the church is subject to the judgment councils of the church. Even the president of the church can be judged for his transgressions. Any charges against the president will be heard by the common council of the church with twelve counselors of the high priesthood assisting. Whatever decision is reached will be final and conclusive. Thus, none shall be exempted from the justice and the laws of God, that all things may be done in order and in solemnity before him, according to truth and righteousness. Thus all members of the church are subject to the government of the church in order that there may be order, and the people may have confidence in their leaders. And again verily I say unto you, The duty of a president over the office of a deacon is to preside over twelve deacons, to sit in council with them, and to teach them their duty, edifying one another, as it is given according to the covenants. With further reference to the quorums of the priesthood, the president of the deacon's quorum shall preside over twelve deacons. And also the duty of the president over the office of the teachers is to preside over twenty-four of the teachers and to sit in council with them, teaching them the duties of their office as given in the covenants. The president of the teachers shall preside over twenty-four teachers. Also the duty of the president over the priesthood of Aaron is to preside over forty-eight priests, and to sit in council with them, to teach them the duties of their office, as is given in the covenants. This president is to be a bishop, for this is one of the duties of this priesthood. And the bishop shall preside over forty-eight priests, and shall be their teacher to prepare them for their duties in the priesthood. Again, the duty of the president over the office of elders is to preside over ninety-six elders, and to sit in council with them, and to teach them according to the covenants. The president of the elders' quorum shall preside over ninety-six elders, and teach them according to their duties as holders of the priesthood. This presidency is a distinct one from that of the seventy, and is designed for those who do not travel into all the world. The seven presidents of the seventy are distinct from the members of the quorum. The seven presidents do not have to travel abroad. And again, the duty of the president of the office of the high priesthood is to preside over the whole church and to be like unto Moses. Behold, here is wisdom, yea, to be a seer, a revelator, a translator, and a prophet, having all the gifts of God which he bestows upon the head of the church. The president of the church is responsible for the whole kingdom. He is like a Moses and shall serve as a prophet, seer, and revelator, also a translator and a prophet. He is also the custodian of the gifts of God which belong to the church. Now, we have a historical note by Dr. Sidney B. Sperry of BYU who says, quote, in the days of the prophet Joseph Smith, 
It was customary for the people of the church to sustain him as a translator, as well as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Today, the duties of the president of the church do not require him to translate, and it is not the practice of the church to sustain him as a translator. But when the time comes for the Lord to reveal such scriptures as the book of Enoch, according to verse 57, the brass plate referred to in 1 Nephi 5, 10 to 19, the large plates of Nephi referred to in 1 Nephi 9 and 4, and also 19, verses 2 and 4, or the 24 plates of ether referred to in Mosiah 8 and 9, as well as 28, verses 11 to 20, and many others, the president of the church may again be sustained as a translator, and that's according to Brother Sperry's Doctrine and Covenants Compendium, page 576. And it is according to the vision showing the order of the seventy that they should have seven presidents to preside over them, chosen out of the number of the seventy. And the seventh president of these presidents is to preside over the six. Everything we have discussed thus far is according to a vision which Joseph was shown. In that vision he saw that the seventy should have seven presidents with one chosen to preside over them. And these seven presidents are to choose other seventy besides the first seventy to whom they belong, and are to preside over them. Seven presidents of seventy are to choose seventy others who are worthy to be member of a quorum of seventies. And also other seventy, until seven times seventy, if the labor in the vineyard of necessity requires it. They should then multiply the quorums of seventy until they have seventy times seventy. They are to labor in the Lord's vineyard as circumstances require it. And these seventy are to be traveling ministers unto the Gentiles first and also unto the Jews. These seventy are to be traveling ministers first to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. Whereas other officers of the church, who belong not unto the twelve, neither to the seventy, are not under the responsibility to travel among all nations, but are to travel as their circumstances shall allow. Notwithstanding, they may hold as high and responsible offices in the church. Those who are not general authorities are not obligated to travel among the various nations, better to travel locally as circumstances will permit, even though they are high officers in the church. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty, and to act in the office in which he is appointed, in all diligence. Now we come to the Lord's final proclamation, where he says, Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty, and to act in the office to which he is appointed in all diligence. He that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand, and he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy to stand. Even so. Amen. And with this final proclamation there is a final warning. The Lord says, quote, he that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand, and he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not yet be counted worthy to stand, unquote. Even so, amen.
Section 108, Introduction The year 1835 was not only memorable for the restoration of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Quorum of Seventy, but also the great revelation on priesthood and several other things of great importance. For example, on July the 3rd, 1835, Michael Chandler brought his famous collection of four Egyptian mummies and several papyrus scrolls to Kirtland. He was anxious to see if Joseph Smith could decipher the Egyptian writings and found to his rather exciting satisfaction that he could. He therefore gave Joseph a certificate certifying to Joseph's ability. However, Joseph's deciphering must have been based on some small portion which other Egyptologists had deciphered, because it was not until after the saints had purchased the mummies and manuscripts that Joseph realized what a treasure they were. The church history says, quote, With W. W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery as scribes, I commenced the translation of some of the characters of the hieroglyphics, and much to our joy found that one of the rolls contained the writings of Abraham and another the writings of Joseph of Egypt, unquote. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 236. Among other features of 1835, there was a period in the fall of that year when Joseph spent much of his time trying to quiet the contentions and troubled spirits which kept manifesting themselves among the saints. It was also a time of tension and anxiety among those who were anxious to finish the temple in the next few weeks. One of those who was worried about his standing with both the Lord and the brethren was Lyman Sherman. He had gone to Missouri with Joseph in Zion's camp, but nevertheless wavered in his spirit when he returned. He felt impressed to ask the prophet for a special revelation on his behalf. The day after Christmas, he went to the home of Joseph, and in response to his request, Joseph received this revelation. Here is the text of section 108. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Lyman, Your sins are forgiven you, because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of him whom I have appointed. Frequently the voice of the Spirit counsels members of the church without any response from the members. Lyman is commended for following the promptings he had received to come to visit with the prophet Joseph. As a result, his sins are forgiven him. Therefore let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing, and resist no more my voice. Lyman can have peace of mind concerning his standing with the Lord. He may have resisted the promptings of the Spirit on previous occasions, but the Lord tells him to refrain from resisting the voice of the Lord in the future. And arise up, and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, which you have made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessings. As the Lord would tell most of the saints who came seeking special counsel, quote, be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, and you will be blessed, period, unquote. Wait patiently until the solemn assembly shall be called of my servants. Then you shall be remembered with the first of mine elders, and receive right by ordination with the rest of mine elders whom I have chosen. 
Concerning blessings in the temple, he is told to be patient and wait for the solemn assembly when he will receive his blessings along with the leaders of the church. Behold, this is the promise of the Father unto you, if you continue faithful. All he has to do is to remain faithful, and the Father has promised that he will receive his great blessings. And it shall be fulfilled upon you in that day, that you shall have right to preach my gospel, wheresoever I shall send you, from henceforth from that time. He will also be called to go forth as a missionary to preach the gospel. Therefore, strengthen your brethren in all your conversation, in all your prayers, in all your exhortations, and in all your doings. Lyman is urged to be positive in his outlook so as to strengthen the other brethren. And behold, and lo, I am with you to bless you and deliver you forever. Amen. He is assured the Lord will be with him always so long as he is faithful. Section 108, Introduction The year 1835 was not only memorable for the restoration of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Quorum of Seventy, but also the great revelation on priesthood and several other things of great importance. For example, on July the 3rd, 1835, Michael Chandler brought his famous collection of four Egyptian mummies and several papyrus scrolls to Kirtland. He was anxious to see if Joseph Smith could decipher the Egyptian writings and found to his rather exciting satisfaction that he could. He therefore gave Joseph a certificate certifying to Joseph's ability. However, Joseph's deciphering must have been based on some small portion which other Egyptologists had deciphered, because it was not until after the saints had purchased the mummies and manuscripts that Joseph realized what a treasure they were. The church history says, quote, With W. W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery as scribes, I commenced the translation of some of the characters of the hieroglyphics, and much to our joy found that one of the rolls contained the writings of Abraham, and another the writings of Joseph of Egypt, unquote. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 236. Among other features of 1835, there was a period in the fall of that year when Joseph spent much of his time trying to quiet the contentions and troubled spirits which kept manifesting themselves among the saints. It was also a time of tension and anxiety among those who were anxious to finish the temple in the next few weeks. One of those who was worried about his standing with both the Lord and the brethren was Lyman Sherman. He had gone to Missouri with Joseph in Zion's camp, but nevertheless wavered in his spirit when he returned. He felt impressed to ask the prophet for a special revelation on his behalf. The day after Christmas, he went to the home of Joseph, and in response to his request, Joseph received this revelation. Here is the text of section 108. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Lyman, Your sins are forgiven you, because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of him whom I have appointed. Frequently the voice of the Spirit counsels members of the church without any response from the members. Lyman is commended for following the promptings he had received to come to visit with the prophet Joseph. 
As a result, his sins are forgiven him. Therefore let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing, and resist no more my voice. Lyman can have peace of mind concerning his standing with the Lord. He may have resisted the promptings of the Spirit on previous occasions, but the Lord tells him to refrain from resisting the voice of the Lord in the future. And arise up, and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, which you have made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessings. As the Lord would tell most of the saints who came seeking special counsel, quote, Be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, and you will be blessed, period, unquote. Wait patiently until the solemn assembly shall be called of my servants. Then you shall be remembered with the first of mine elders, and receive right by ordination with the rest of mine elders whom I have chosen. Concerning blessings in the temple, he is told to be patient and wait for the solemn assembly when he will receive his blessings along with the leaders of the church. Behold, this is the promise of the Father unto you, if you continue faithful. All he has to do is to remain faithful, and the Father has promised that he will receive his great blessings. And it shall be fulfilled upon you in that day that you shall have right to preach my gospel wheresoever I shall send you from henceforth from that time. He will also be called to go forth as a missionary to preach the gospel. Therefore, strengthen your brethren in all your conversation, in all your prayers, in all your exhortations, and in all your doings. Lyman is urged to be positive in his outlook so as to strengthen the other brethren. And behold, and lo, I am with you to bless you and deliver you forever. Amen. He is assured the Lord will be with him always so long as he is faithful. If you liked this podcast and would like access to other materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find them online at skousenlibrary.com.